So John chapter 6, Jesus is really gaining a lot of popularity with the multitudes. And immediately they start to think about, wow, could this be the one? Could this be the one that's prophesied about? Uh, One thing we do know about him is that uh, he's with the people and he's doing things for the people. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, we have some uh, prophecy here about Jesus. Uh, It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord, your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So Moses, someone who the Jews looked highly up to, uh, they constantly referred to Moses. He was uh, the law communicator, if you will. God was the law giver, of course. And so they looked at Moses as someone who whatever Moses said, they could take as truth for sure. So Moses is saying this prophet's going to be raised up, God through Moses, obviously, but, um, and he will come from among your brethren. And he'll, uh, his words will be my words. And he shall speak all that I command him. They would have known this scripture. And they would have known that when someone comes on the scene like this, well, hey, could this be the, the coming Messiah? Could this be the one? So we see in verse 15 then what is going to happen. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. We see this through the Gospels quite a bit where Jesus perceives something. He's God. He can do that, right? But people could be mumbling over here or just thinking something and he would know it because he's God. He knows what's on the hearts of men and in the minds of men. And so he perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and and come and make him king. So that that shouldn't surprise us. Someone who teaches like Jesus did, you know, they uh, heard him teach. Uh, heals like people, uh, people like Jesus did. I mean, nobody else uh, was doing that. Uh, feeds people like Jesus did. That would be a biggie on the list for a lot of people right there. Wow, our bellies will always be full. You know, this is great. What, you know, what's not to like with Jesus as king? Everything they've seen makes him a very attractive individual to be king, doesn't it? But what were their expectations? What did they know from prophecy concerning the Messiah? The people want to make Jesus king because of these miracles that he's performing. That's that's what's drawing them to him. So in the same way that Moses led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, these people were looking for someone to lead them out of the bondage of Rome, weren't they? They were under the bondage of Rome at this time. They were even looking for a king like David, a military leader, a conqueror like David. That's what they were looking for in as a king. So we see how Jesus responds to this. 
uh, as we look at Matthew's account in this, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 and 23, uh, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. So again, we jump over to Matthew, we look at this same account, and we get a little more insight to what's going on. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Immediately. Why? Why did he do that? Well, I think there's a couple possible reasons. He didn't want his disciples to get caught up in the zeal of the crowd to make him king. That's, that's one possible explanation of that, is that the crowd's getting riled up. They want to make Jesus king. And Jesus is like, okay, I don't want the boys getting involved with this. I don't want them to be drawn into that uh, zeal, that uprising, if you will. So I'm going to send them away. Or it could have been that some of the disciples were part of that zeal as well. Maybe it already started to happen. But both of these, both uh, solutions or answers that we see to this question, why did they do that, or why did Jesus do that, they both indicate an urgency on Jesus' part to have them leave. Because the text says immediately. Immediately. Throughout John's Gospel, we're going to see a statement that's repeated by Jesus. We've already seen it once uh, when Jesus says, my hour, my time has not yet come. You remember in John chapter 2 in Cana at the wedding, before turning the water into wine, Jesus said to his mother, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Then we're going to see in John chapter 7, uh, verses 6 and 8, when Jesus' own brothers are urging him to go up to Jerusalem for the feast so that he could reveal himself uh, to everybody in Jerusalem in the way that he'd been doing things uh, up in Galilee. He says to his brothers, you go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet come. Then in John 8, 20, uh, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one laid hands on him. It says for his hour had not yet come. This repeated phrase that we see his hour, his time had not yet come. What's it referring to? Well, the answer can only be found in Jesus' own words as he prays in the garden. In John chapter 17, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. The hour, the time, Jesus was speaking of his crucifixion. That was what was impending for him. That was what was coming up. The hour has come. He's speaking of the time when he would be sacrificed for the sin of the world. But here in our text that we're looking at tonight, it's not time for that yet. And we're going to see that repeated as we go through John. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. Everything happens in the perfect will, and the perfect timing of the Father. There's still more teaching to be done. There's still more miracles to be performed more prophecy to be fulfilled. His time, his hour, it had not yet come. And so he was focused on the mission and the ministry that the Father had for him to do. 
And he's not going to let anything or anyone distract him from that focus. Not his disciples, not the multitudes, not even the Jewish leaders who wanted to arrest him many, many times. This would not take place until the appointed time. When the time was right. This timeline set by the Father. The timeline that would fulfill all of prophecy concerning the Messiah. So the people wanted a king. We get that. He, he would be a king, but not in the way that they wanted. They wanted this strong military leader, someone to overthrow Rome, to end the bondage. He would be king, but his throne would not be in Jerusalem at this time. After his arrest, Jesus is brought before Pilate, and he asks him, Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? Turn over to John chapter 18 real quick. Hold your place in John chapter 6. John chapter 18. And we see this account, this, this dialogue that goes on between Pilate and Jesus, starting at verse 33. John 18, 33. It says, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. It's interesting in that text that Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. Where are the multitudes now? Where are the multitudes that right here in John 6 wanted to make him king? Where are they? Where are all those who wanted to make him king after they'd been fed? Jesus is not going to allow the multitudes to influence him to divert from the Father's plan. He's focused on that. He's not going to allow the multitudes even to influence his disciples to divert from the Father's plan. So seeing and hearing the multitudes wanting to make him king, he immediately sent the disciples away. And he also, as we see in Matthew's account, then after that, he sends the multitudes away as well. And then what does Jesus do? The text tells us in Matthew that he went up on the mountain to spend time with the Father in prayer. When those around you and me try to distract us from what the Father wants us to do, we also need to get away and spend time with the Father in prayer. We need that time. We need that time for encouragement, for guidance, for support, for direction. You see, time with the Father, it clarifies our calling. And it prepares us for adversity. When adversity comes our way. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Note the word tribulation in that verse. 
It's a little T, isn't it? <laughs> the little tribulation, not capital T, as in the great tribulation. The little tribulation that we see there speaks of adversity and affliction, things that we're going to face in everyday life, things that we're going to run into. The big tribulation or the great tribulation is what's spoken of in that period of time when God pours out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. At Calvary Chapel, most of you probably know, we believe that the saints, those that, who know Christ and have accepted them, Him as their Savior, they will not go through this great tribulation. We are not appointed to wrath, the Scripture says. Fascinating study for another time. We're going to stay with our text tonight. So we know in our own lives that we have and we will experience this little T, tribulations, storms, challenging times, winds of adversity. Uh, strong winds come. Very strong winds. My grandpa, he tells the story of one time back in Illinois that the wind was blowing so hard that he had a chicken that laid the same egg three times. That's, that's some strong wind right there. <laughs> but strong winds of adversity blow into our lives. And the disciples are about to experience that. In the feeding of the multitude, they have experienced the lesson on God's provision that we looked at last week. Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. God providing for the multitudes and for the disciples in abundance. And now as the winds of adversity come, they will experience a lesson in this text on God's protection. So we saw last week these disciples had just completed this very successful mission, healing the sick and preaching the gospel as they had been sent out. They had on this same day shared in the feeding of this multitude, over 10,000 people. So they're on this spiritual high. They're having a mountaintop experience. We, we can relate to that. A mountaintop experiences are a good thing as long as we don't get careless and step off a cliff. So we still need on the mountaintop to be focused on the one who got us there in humility and recognizing God as our provider, God as our protector. The Lord balances spiritual blessings with storms and winds in our lives to mature us, to make us mature believers and not spoiled children. That's the work that He does. Verse 16 says, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So a great wind starts blowing. The sea becomes rough. In Mark chapter 6, the, his account of this story, Jesus sees them straining. Jesus was up on the mountain praying. They were down on the sea straining. Again, as we look back through the harmony of the Gospels and we see chronologically what's happened, this had happened before when they had been out on the sea and a storm came. Jesus was in the boat with them at that time. This time He's up on the mountain praying for them. I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago that when, uh, in 2007 when I had the opportunity to go to Israel with our church, uh, we went out on the Sea of Galilee. And it's kind of interesting because they've got these wooden boats 
they aren't wooden. They're just clad with wood. We go out on the lake, out on the sea, and while we're out there, some winds start kicking up. And it is amazing how rough that sea got in just a short amount of time. Big white caps coming up on, on the sea, tossing the boat around, and Pastor Jeff's up there trying to teach, and you know he's getting thrown all over the place. And this is a pretty good-sized boat. And I don't know exactly what size boat they were in, but I don't think it was that big. And it was getting tossed around, so I can imagine these guys. Now, they're fishermen. They've experienced this kind of thing before. But it says in Mark's account that he came to them walking on the sea. He saw them straining. He saw them struggling. And he came to them. Verse 19 in chapter 6 of John. So that when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. Everything was done by oar power then, right? There wasn't no Evinrude to slap on the back of the boat to try to get somewhere quickly. It was just on their own strength that they would get there. So they rode about three or four miles. They're out on the rough part of the sea, and they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and it says they were afraid. Jesus, he's walking on the water. In the middle of their distress, they see him walking on the water, and they think what? They think he's a ghost. They were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. He said, Don't be afraid. It's, it's me. Many times when angels come to, to someone in the New Testament, what happens? They say, Don't be afraid. Why do you suppose they say that? <laughs> I think the people are afraid. If we saw a real angel, we would be afraid. We would, be, we would panic, I think. You know, I mean, I'd like to say, oh, yeah, I'm Pastor Jim. If I saw an angel, I'd, oh, praise God, you know. I don't think so. I think it would scare me a lot. What's going on? I'd probably doubt what it was, but I would be afraid. So we can understand that they're afraid. But he says to them, and as I do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's, it's me. In Matthew's account, we see that Peter says this. If it's you, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus says, come. Peter steps out of the boat, steps onto the water in faith. Praying that it's hard water, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Peter does walk on water for a time, doesn't he? And Peter loses faith because he begins to focus more on his surroundings than on Jesus and he starts to sink. And then Peter cries out for the Lord to rescue him. And Jesus reaches down and rescues him, and they both get into the boat. We know that story well. We've heard that story if, if you've grown up in church since you were just very small. Peter walking on the water. Without looking at the harmony of the Gospels, we would never know that the only account of that is found in Matthew, right? Why is that? I have no idea. <laughs> God told the other guys to write what they wrote, and that's what they wrote, and there you have it. I, I don't really have any other explanation. But Matthew gives us that account. I'm glad he did, because I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that. Again, we don't see that in our text tonight, but if we merge all this together, we do, and it completes the story for us. 
So again, Matthew's account says, and when they, Jesus and Peter, got into the boat, the wind ceased. Verse 21, chapter 6, then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately a boat was at the land where they were going. So the stormy wind ceased, and then immediately they were at the land where they were going. Now a close look at this text using the account of Matthew, Mark, and John revealed to us four miracles that takes place that evening. So we've seen the miracle that just happened with the feeding of the 5,000. Now we're going to see four more miracles that happen that might escape uh, your uh, view of this text unless you look at it closely. So we're going to see that Jesus walks on water. Okay, we know that one. Peter walks on water for a short time. We know that one. Jesus calms the storm. The winds cease. And then the fourth one, the boat immediately arrives at shore. Now, if they had rowed out three or four miles, they're out there a ways, and all of this takes place, and then Jesus steps into the boat, the wind ceases, and immediately they're at the shore. They're on the other side of the sea. They're on the other side of the storm. I like the New Living Translation of Psalm 46.1. It says, God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. He's, he's with us to be what we need in our time of need. And we are needy, <laughs> aren't we? We're all very needy people, as we should be when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, because we know we fall short on a regular basis. So we're needy. We're needy people. In this short story, there's these four miracles present, but there's also a sequence of guiding principles or lessons for us to learn. Because we go through storms in our own lives, don't we? And I know that this is an analogy that's used all the time when we look at this text. Uh, pastor after pastor, preacher after preacher, teacher after teacher, they share this about going through the storms in our lives. We go through them. We have those tough times. So it's good for us to be reminded of these things and see what God wants to teach us through those. So when we face winds of adversity, problems in our marriage, problems in relationships, problems in our business, our jobs, our finances, problems with family, kids, with friends, problems that all of us face uh, in our lives uh, daily, weekly, monthly, throughout the years, Jesus says, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Jesus would say to us while we're going through a storm, while it's upon us, I got this. Have faith in me. Trust in me. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus says, when others, when things let you down, I will not. I am here for you. I think it's interesting to note that not all of the disciples were fishermen, were they? We, we, we typically think that they were fishers of men. They were fishermen. But we know of at least one that was a tax collector, right? I don't know if he was afraid of the sea. We don't know that much. We don't have that kind of insight about Matthew. But certainly he was not familiar with the sea. Not as familiar as these fishermen. Somewhat unfamiliar then with his environment that he's in right now. We find that regularly in our lives as well. M many times we find ourselves in unfamiliar territory. 
We're experiencing something that we've never had to face before. But Jesus is there. He's there to prepare us before the storm, to comfort us during the storm, and to deliver us from the storm, but also to forgive us when we fail in the storm. How many of us have been there? Where there's a storm, there's a challenge, and in that challenge, we fail. We don't keep our focus on the Lord. We're like Peter. We've got the faith. We step out of the boat. We step onto the water. I'm walking on water. And the winds are blowing. White caps are coming. Our attention is drawn away. We're no longer focused on Jesus. And we start to sink. We start to fail. Peter had been empowered by Jesus to do it. He said what? Come. Come on. Peter stepped out in faith and did it for a little while till he lost his focus. So when we go through these storms, Christ is there to prepare us before the storm, during the storm, deliver us from the storm, and to forgive us when we fail in the storm. It's said that the gift of forgiveness is often best appreciated by those who need it the most. Well, I, I can relate to that. Can you guys relate to that? Ah, there's so many times I need to be forgiven. And I am so glad I have that forgiveness available to me. A man that you may have heard about before, the Reverend John Newton. He experienced this truth firsthand. And his tombstone really tells the story. His tombstone reads this. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had so long labored to destroy. Now these words were written by Newton himself, <laughs> a testimony to God's transforming power in his life. After years as a hardened slave trader, that wretch, John Newton, met Jesus Christ in a storm at sea and abruptly turned to defend the gospel he had so long despised. Now throughout Newton's years of ministry, God's amazing grace remained central to Newton's thinking. And when it was suggested that he retire at age 82 due to poor health and a failing memory, he responded, My memory is nearly gone but I do remember two things. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Newton says, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Most of us know John Newton because he was the one who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And that's a song that has encouraged so many of us. Wonderful song. Before we close tonight, let's take another look at Peter in this story. We see Peter as someone who consistently messed up. As we read through the Gospels, we look at Peter and we just think, man, how did, how did Peter just constantly mess up like that? If, have you ever thought about if someone was to document your Christian walk and they had all the insight of what had gone on in your life? <laughs> It would, a lot of it would just be embarrassing, wouldn't it? Peter would 
literally look like a saint I mean, compared to us, right? Because we, we have that a tendency just to mess up in our lives, but we have a wonderful Savior to, to forgive us and love on us and guide us and direct us and grow us and help us to overcome those storms that we go through. But Peter, we know him as someone who messed up consistently. But here he was. Here he is in a storm, and he sees Jesus. He recognizes Jesus' voice. And he says what? Lord, if it's you, command me to walk on the water. Lord, if it's really you, I see you walking on the water. I want to do that. I want to get out of the boat. This could be very helpful in fishing. You think about that. If you're a bass fisherman and you don't have a boat, bass fishing is very tough. But if you can walk on water, man, you can get up right where you need to, wherever you are, on the lake or on the river, wherever it is. Walking on water would be a wonderful uh, skill to have. But where was Peter when he said this? He was in the boat, wasn't he? He was in his perceived place of safety. He was in the storm, trusting in the boat, that the boat's going to do its job and do what it's supposed to. He's in the boat. He thinks he's in a place of safety. He's trusting in the boat. But he says, if you command me to, Lord, I will step out of this boat. If you command me to, I will step out of this perceived place of safety. If you command me to, I will step out and trust in you. But in order to do this, just like we've talked about already, his focus had to be on Jesus. It couldn't be on his circumstances. He couldn't focus on the storm. He had to get out of his comfort zone, his perceived safety zone, and trust in Jesus. Remembering that, as we've talked about here before, God's commandments are God's enablements. God will not command us to do something that He will not also enable us to accomplish. God doesn't play tricks like that. He's going to command us to do something just to see us mess up. Hey, come over here, guys. You know, check this out. Watch Him. He's going to fail miserably. It's going to be so... It's going to be fun to watch this. He's really going to mess up. God doesn't do that. That's not His intention. He wants us to succeed in Him. So if He commands us to do something, He's also going to enable us to do it. But it does take trust on our part to get there, doesn't it? We've got to have faith. We've got to have trust in what He's commanding us to do. So Peter asked Jesus, what? Command me to do it. Don't make it just a suggestion or, hey, try this out. But Lord, command me to do it. And Jesus says, come, come on, get out of it. Come to me. And he does the same with us. If we cry out to the Lord, he says, come to me. Obey me. Have faith in me. Trust me. Even though you're in this storm that you're going through, cry out to me. Come to me. Peter steps out. He walks on water for a little while. I have to wonder what the other disciples thought. Wow, he's really walking. Look at Peter. He's actually walking on water. Oh, Peter, Peter, oh, Peter, keep it. Don't, you're, you're going to sink, you know. Don't look at the waves. Don't look at the wind. You're going to sink, Peter. 
Peter takes his focus off the Lord, starts sinking, doesn't he? He distracted by the wind and the waves, he loses his focus. He's now focused more on his situation than he is focused on Jesus. And he starts to sink. But even in the sinking, he still cries out for Jesus to help him. When he felt like he's going under, he's going down, he still cries out to Jesus to help him. And Jesus reaches down through the wind and into the waves, into the storm, and grabs his hand and pulls him up. He does the same thing for us, gang. Whatever we're going through, we need to keep our focus on Jesus, whatever it is. I know as we go through life, we all have those times where we're facing something that seems very complicated, something that just doesn't, how are we going to get over this? How are we going to get through this? Lord, yes, that's right, Lord, cry out to the Lord. We've got proof texts throughout all of Scripture to show that we are saved by a deliverer. He delivered us from our sin. He's more than capable of delivering us from anything else that would come up in our lives. Nothing's impossible for Him. No hurdle is too great for Him to to get us over. He can get us through anything. And I don't know about you guys, but I know for me, sometimes it takes me a while to get around to that. I, I tend to maybe try to do it on my own. Maybe I try to seek worldly wisdom. Uh, seeking, it seems like a lot of times anything but Jesus in that times when I should just be crying out to Him from the very beginning. Whatever we're going through, we need to keep our focus on Jesus. We need to be in a place where we're praying for wisdom even before the storm. Before the storm even comes up, Lord, strengthen me. Encourage me. Give me wisdom. Give me discernment to even see the storm coming. Many times the storms are self-inflicted as well, aren't they? But when we see the storms coming, we've prayed up. God, give me wisdom before the storm even happens. Lord, praying to Him, give me strength during the storm. Help me to stay strong. Help me to stay focused upon You. Praying for deliverance from the storm. He'll take us through the storm long enough for us to learn what He wants us to learn. And then deliverance will come, won't it? He doesn't want to just immediately jerk us out of the storm with us not learning anything. What purpose would it serve, right? But then we also need to remember to always welcome Jesus into our boat. (laughs) Welcome Jesus into your boat. Because what's going to happen? What we see from the text. The winds are going to cease and He's going to immediately get us to the place where we need to be where we were going. Before we know it, we're on the other side. We're on the other side of the storm. And we can give God the praise and the glory. Give God all the credit for the work that He done before, during, and after the storm that we've gone through. Amen?